Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to This Week in FCPA. Episode 143 for the week ending February 22, 2019, the London Homesick Blues Edition. First, a word from our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors. Founded in 2004, Affiliated Monitors provides professional, independent integrity monitoring and ethics and compliance assessments nationally and internationally and across almost all industries. With its knowledge of effective ethics and compliance programs and cultures, Affiliated Monitor is respected for its work as the corporate monitor on matters ranging from multinational corporations to small and mid-sized companies and even individuals. Having served in over 750 monitorships, no one has more experience as an independent monitor than the team at Affiliated Monitors. For more information on how an independent monitor can help improve your company's ethics and compliance program, visit our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors, at www.affiliatedmonitors.com. We begin with breaking news on the Fresenius FCPA settlement. Consider the FCPA conviction of a former Hong Kong official to SEC whistleblowers awards. Ask whether corruption can be measured. And then consider the autonomy HP civil litigation in London. Jill Mott tells us about the difference in whistleblowing and extortion as Russ Berlin communicates with us on supply chain risk. We take a look at two issues from Canada, both anti-corruption and money laundering. And finally, Matt Kelly talks to us about whistleblower retaliation. We look at some of the highlights from my podcast series with Jesse Kaplan on affiliated monitors. Talk about the Greater Houston Business and Ethics Roundtable meeting on April 11th and in Houston. If you're in Houston, I hope you'll join us. And finally, the offering this week on Great Women in Compliance, where Mary Shirley visits with Marianne Ibrahim. It's a fascinating and fun-filled episode this week, and I know you will enjoy it. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist, back for... Another episode of This Week in FCPA, episode 184 for the week ending, March 29th, 2019, the Hope Springs Eternal Edition. As opening day is here, and the Astros are predicted to unseat Jays, Red Sox, and reclaim, bring it home, the 2019 World Series Championship, we are eternally hopeful for our hometown heroes. So, Jay, Welcome. Thanks, Tom. Uh, happy 2019 MLB season. So, uh, should we uh, relate the uh, standings to everyone today? Sure. Yeah. Why, why don't you uh, get up on that soapbox and tell us? So, uh, the Astros, uh, uh, once again, in the seventh consecutive year since they moved to the American League, have won their opening day game, and we now lead the league with, a be- indeed, best record in baseball at 1-0. And we're in the cellar at 0-1. Next. Okay. So, Jay, first of all, uh, we rarely get to do this on This Week in FCPA, but we have a... Breaking news. Breaking news as Fresenius has agreed to pay $231 million in criminal penalties and disgorgement to resolve Foreign Corrupt Practice Act charges. The DOJ has just sent out an announcement of the settlement of the case. It was resolved via a non-prosecution agreement. Um... It's uh, a well-known case that's been going on for some time, so it's going to be uh, interesting to uh, to break it down. But uh, a well-deserved settlement and an NPA, which uh, is always 
a, a positive for a company. So a uh, hot take or rather or a breaking news on this week in FCPA. Well, Jay, we had some other uh, FCPA news this week. You want to tell us about a uh, Hong Kong official being sentenced yeah. for FCPA violations? Yeah, this is pretty interesting. Uh, Hong Kong's former home secretary uh, was sentenced to three years in prison Monday for bribing African officials on behalf of a Chinese energy company. Patrick Ho, 69, was William, was ordered to pay a $400,000 fine. In December, Ho was found guilty after a one-week trial in New York City by the Southern District of New York. He was convicted by a jury on seven counts, one count of conspiring to violate the FCPA, four counts of violating the FCPA, one count of conspiring to commit international money laundering, and for good measure, one count of committing international money laundering. Uh, the jury acquitted Ho on one money laundering count, and he had denied uh, all eight accounts uh, against him. So um, what's interesting about this is that that's the, the facts of the case from Harry Casson. And we have an article from Matthew Goldstein in the New York Times that says ex-Hong Kong official gets lighter sentence in bribery case. And uh, basically, Judge Loretta A. Preska of the Federal District Court in Manhattan uh, sentenced Patrick Ho to three years in prison, two years less than federal prosecutors had thought. And she did this because of his, quote, random acts of kindness to so many that is something extraordinary. And I guess uh, when he was in prison, he put his time to good use. And he's already served about 16 months and he helped people working on their uh, GED and helping uh, working with other inmates who are on suicide watch. So um, I guess it really does show that the federal judges in these situations do have a latitude. And, you know, this was in the news a couple weeks ago when they were talking about the seemingly light sentence that came down from the Eastern District of Virginia for Paul Manafort and then a bit more um, of a harsher sentence in the D.C. court. So um, any thoughts on this one, Tom? So uh, really, it was this second uh, article that you cited, Jay, and it really demonstrated that uh, exactly what you say, the latitude of judges. I don't think anyone thought that um, random acts of kindness would reduce your sentence, but apparently they do, at least in this court, uh, with time served of 18 months. uh, Really, uh, Mr. Ho will have a, a, a shorter stay than his sentence would have uh, indicated, uh, but all very interesting at the end of the day. So uh, I can't whistle well, but we've got a couple stories uh, this week about whistleblowers. Uh, why don't you tell us what uh, Wall Street Journal's Risk and Compliance Journal is saying about it? So the uh, SEC uh released information on uh, two whistleblower awards of $50 million, one of 37 and one of 13, uh, related to a unnamed financial services organization. Uh, we've got three articles we cite in here for, uh, or four rather. Uh, Christine Broughton in uh, Risk and Compliance Journal, Matt Kelly, of course, in Radical Compliance. Uh, we rarely do, but we cite him, and we probably should cite him more, but he doesn't post enough anymore. And that's Doug Cornelius over at Compliance Building and then Jonathan uh, Marks on board and fraud. Jay, um, the Matt really detailed in his radical compliance piece 
the information that the SEC laid out in uh, its press release, and they really laid out in the award, they really laid out the steps you need to take. This was interesting because uh, whistleblower number one, who was the first one, uh, he received the $13 million, and whistleblower number two received $37 million. Uh, whistleblower number three, for some reason, was not mentioned, and then whistleblowers uh, four, five, six, and seven didn't get anything. Uh, whistleblower four was mentioned in the award. <clears throat> the lesson is that whistleblower one did not uh, timely report, um, even though he was the first to report. Whistleblower two came in with uh, not the top information, excuse me, not the first information, but the best information, the true smoking gun. Uh, Doug Cornelius uh, really, uh, I won't say criticized the award, but he certainly critiqued it in terms of Whistleblower Inc., because both uh, or all of the whistleblowers had counsel, and he discussed counsel's role in this, um, in a as only a New Englander can snarky way. So uh, check out Doug's thoughts about Whistleblower Inc. And Jonathan Marks weighed in and said, uh, "Yeah, you better get your uh, tush over to a uh, lawyer and one who's well versed in this. Probably one who's former SEC whistleblower office lawyer who knows both the SEC knows uh, corporate securities law and uh, can get you in front of the SEC quickly." Uh, with the best information. So um, for those who are uh, wondering what the SEC is going to do with the whistleblower program, this would seem to be a really great example of how important the whistleblower program is, because remember, uh, this this is a third of the award. So $50 million, $150 million in total fines and penalties, not insignificant. Um, and uh, to that extent, Jane Nordberg, chief of the uh, SEC's whistleblower office, said in uh, the release statement, these awards show how critically important whistleblowers can be to the agency's investigation and ability to bring a case to successful and efficient resolution. So, um, you know, I would say based on that uh, kind of support from the uh, SEC that it's going to be here to stay for a while. So, Jay, we're having a kind of an interesting debate by uh, Jonathan Rush and William Weaver on the FCPA blog about uh, whether corruption can be measured. Do you want to highlight it for our uh, listeners? Yeah, I think um, it's a little bit he said, he said, and it's a little bit what came first, the chicken or the eggs. So uh, Mr. Weaver takes the point of view that there are no real actual accurate measurements of corruption, that we can talk about things, we can talk about instances of money laundering and instances of corruption, but they don't uh, actually set up any type of concrete measurement for where you have corruption. And in the other hand, Mr. Rush talks about that, uh, you know, Mr. Weaver might be losing his way by talking about the fact that you can't come up with an authoritative definition and that there are um, tools that are out there, whether it's Transparency International's Corruption Perception Index or there's codes of conduct and policies and procedures. But we definitely know that there are indices out there that we can use to tell us where there are regions where there may or may not be more bribery. So I think at the end of the day, they both want to um, agree on that there are remedies, that there are 
different risk assessments that can be done, but I think they're getting tied down by actually uh, using nomenclature and coming up with a de facto uh, measurement of the extent of corruption. That's my two cents. What do you think, Tom? So uh, I guess I thought uh, to, to mirror your comments a little bit that it's an interesting debate. Um, certainly well worth the uh, economic, uh, or rather the um, intellectual firepower involved. Uh, but at the end of the day, um, I think people are going to focus on the amount of money spent, the, law, the amount of the world economy, rather, that's lost to um, bribery and corruption. Uh, and then uh, in another podcast that we recorded earlier today on Everything Compliance, Jonathan Armstrong um, talked about the cost in business uh, of bribe payments. Jay, uh, there is a extraordinarily interesting trial going on over in the United Kingdom, and it's really not getting the play that I think it deserves because it's the largest civil action in the history of the United Kingdom, and it involves the sale of the UK software company's autonomy, uh, or purchased rather by Hewlett-Packard in 2011. For those who might not remember, this was an ultimate unmitigated disaster for HP. They paid a little over $11 billion for it and uh, wrote off, or rather $8 billion, I should say, and then wrote off $5 billion uh, of it. So um, the HP claims that they were fraudulently induced to purchase the company by the accounting fraud of the uh, former CEO, Mike Lynch, Lynch and the former CFO, uh, Hoven Hussein. And uh, Mr. Hussein was criminally convicted in San Francisco over these same allegations under U.S. law. Mike Lynch, the former CEO, is indicted under U.S. law. But before we get to his trial, there's going to be this civil trial. And um, I've been following the U.K. papers on this. It's uh, obviously pretty big over there. But the... um, Defense set up uh, by autonomy really shows the problems HP had in this case. Uh, HP did not follow their own internal procedure for M&A work. It was purchased under the former, or I guess several now, CEOs ago, Leo Apotiker, uh, who was terminated, I think, 17 days after the transaction closed. The new CEO after uh, the replacement, or next CEO, is Meg Whitman. She did not like the deal, and uh, she either didn't really try to integrate the companies fully or did everything she could to make sure it didn't work. Um, There's a couple of other claims of autonomy in their defense. So it's going to be very interesting uh, to see how this plays out. And my fear is that the UK court clears autonomy and then they haul Mike Lynch to America and uh, he's convicted criminally. But it's still the biggest case, so it should garner the most uh, interest at this point. Uh, to be followed. Next up, uh, one of uh, the favorite, uh, I guess, attorney punching bags that we've seen over the last couple of years, Michael Avenetti uh, has the, uh, I guess, unfortunate distinction and, uh, that he shares with Paul Manafort that he's been uh, sentenced or indicted by two different jurisdictions on the same day. And Avenatti has two different uh, issues. One uh, that happened in California was uh, basically with him fraudulently taking money from uh, 
a client. And then the one in New York City that we're going to talk about that just went down is an apparent shakedown of Nike where he tried to extort more than $25 million from the shoe retailer, rather the, the shoe manufacturer. And he tried to strategically do this uh, against the backdrop of the NCAA uh, college basketball tournament in conjunction with um, an earnings call that Nike had coming up. And he threatened to destroy over something like $10 billion of uh, market cap. So what happened here is uh, Nike's outside counsel, when they were negotiating with Mr. Avenatti, uh, found out of his plans. They quickly uh, reached out to the uh, New York uh, Southern District and uh, they wired up the uh, attorneys. They got Mr. Avenatti on tape, and then he was charged. Now, why we're looking at this, we're um, linking in the show notes to an article by Joe Mont over at Compliance Week. And basically, his concern is how this may negatively impact whistleblowers, because ostensibly, uh, Avenatti was representing a whistleblower who uh, was going to go into Nike. And the question is, is when do you stop being a whistleblower and when do you start being an extortionist? And in this situation, Avenatti was an extor- uh, ex- extortionist. But what Joe says is that most people who are whistleblowers are not trying to bring a company down or make themselves wealthy, but they are trying to save the company from itself. They're trying to preserve an honest, fair, and productive working environment. So just as the case in Chicago's that's going down right now to uh, talk about uh, how further people will be affected for bringing cases going forward on whether they've been uh, uh, assaulted or whether there's been some sexual bias against them, uh, Joe does not want whistleblowers to have to kind of deal with this and its uh, potential negative repercussions. Um, next up, Tom, we've got something about risks on the compliance chain, uh, on the supply chain from our colleague Russ Berlin, and we're picking up this story from Corporate Compliance Insights. Right, Jay. We're starting uh, off premiering or previewing rather part one of a two-part blog post series that Russ uh, has written for Corporate Compliance Insights on top risk and supply chain and distribution channels, and it involves counterfeit drugs. And in this part one, uh, Russ really lays out the problem of counterfeit drugs, the market for counterfeit drugs, how far uh, it reaches into the supply chain. It's not simply an emerging market problem. It's a, uh, a Western or developed country problem as well. Um, so, uh, as everything else Russ does, it's great. When Russ Berlin speaks, you need to listen uh, because he's been a chief compliance officer at uh, a couple of uh, pretty big companies, and he's also been in private practice. So uh, he really knows his stuff. He's gotten companies through uh, FCPA uh, enforcement actions. Uh, he's one of, I think, really one of the top practitioners around. So we uh, uh, link to it and then uh, look forward uh, to his follow-up where he talks about the uh, Risk and feud, uh, excuse me, food distribution and sourcing going forward. So, Jay, uh, next up, uh, we have a look at some financial market crime enforcement in Canada and the United Kingdom. Uh, you want to tell us about that? 
Yeah, this is the first of two stories on Canada that we have today. And uh, basically, uh, this comes from New York University's Compliance and Enforcement blog, and it's an article written by Anita Indira Anand. And uh, the thesis here is that strong enforcement of law governing financial markets improves investment, reduces information asymmetries among corporations and investors, and prevents adverse selection. Uh, that this is proven to be a deterrent signaling to potential wrongdoers that criminal activity has serious consequences. Uh, by looking at both actual situations in Canada and the United Kingdom, uh, she, the, the author comes to the conclusion that both the United Kingdom and Canada, the lack of coordination among enforcement agencies when these crimes are investigated and prosecuted. And while market regulation is more centralized uh, in the UK, both companies, countries rather, rely on multiple agencies and require those agencies to work together for the system to properly function. So, um, you know, there are two chief uh, reasons why this doesn't uh, work. Uh, first, while it may sound trite and greater financial resources should be dedicated to the financial criminal market enforcement. So they re to really need to redirect some funds to get the different divisions working together. And second, both jurisdictions should introduce and embrace principles-based regulation in relation to the financial markets. Uh, finally, uh, interagency cooperation should be better facilitated. Both Canada and the UK have moved toward allowing prosecutors to enter into deferred prosecution agreements while offending with offending corporations. So I think it's a little bit of, um, number one, letting the left hand know what the right hand wants to do. And by giving, uh, you know, introducing DPAs, Canada is trying to execute their first one. And we've had uh, you know, less than 10 going on in the UK. So I think it's a matter of uh, trying to find, trying to follow more of the paradigm of what we're doing here in the States. But, um, you know, these are some good ways to uh, look into bringing those two different jurisdictions into best practices. Uh, next, we have our second uh, article of the day from Matt Kelly. This comes from Navix Global's Ethics and Compliance Matters blog, and uh, Tom, rather, <laughs> Matt is talking about uh, thoughts and statistics on anti-retaliation protocols. So, right, uh, Jay, uh, one of the things I think you and I both continually talk about, certainly in terms of corporate culture, is not whether you have a hotline, not whether you have a speak-up culture, but whether there's retaliation, or more importantly, whether employees trust that there is no retaliation. And so Matt really takes uh, his article from that perspective. Uh, unfortunately, he finds 44% of reporting employees experience retaliation after reporting some wrongdoing of some kind, um, whereas uh, noting that internal the 2019 hotline and incident management benchmark report showed only one point. One eight percent of internal reports were around uh, retaliation, and if people don't perceive that there's trust in the system, it's going to really destroy your entire uh, speak up culture. So uh, Matt really talks about the things you can do to um, 
make sure that the information uh, retains uh, it stays confidential and that uh, top management's got to make clear that uh, a CEO must have a pro or, or rather uh, a clearly a, a no retaliation policy at the top and it flows down from there. But I can't really emphasize enough that how big a problem this is because it's one that's really not reported as Matt notes, the, the disparity between those who said they experienced retaliation and those who actually reported it through the hotline. Um, if you don't have trust, uh, you don't have uh, an appropriate culture. And I know that's something that uh, you and your colleagues and affiliated monitors talk about uh, really a lot, which is corporate culture. So uh, this is a key component of that. Uh, the need for uh, confidentiality around internal reporting, the need for uh, absolute mandate of no uh, retaliation uh, is uh, going to be uh, critical. And as these types of issues bubble up and go in front of regulators, such as the Securities and Exchange Commission, I think they're going to take a much dimmer view and sanction companies uh, much more for this going forward. All right, Tom. And the last article we have today, uh, going back to Canada, as we promised, this uh, second article from Jonathan Rush, and this comes from his Dipping Through Geometries blog site. Uh, And this is uh, an interesting one. OECD Bribery Working Group issues statement on the SNC-Lavalin controversy in advance of Phase 4 review. So basically, the uh, Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, OECD, Working Group on Bribery, issued a statement expressing concern about, quote, recent allegations of interference in the prosecution of Canadian engineering firm SNC-Lavalin by Canadian authorities. And this concern was prompted by a sequence of recent events relating to Canadian prosecutors' pursuit of both SNC-Lavalin and former officials for violations of the Corruption of Foreign Public Officials Act, which is the Canadian version of the FCPA. And uh, basically, uh, the Trudeau regime in Canada has interfered twice uh, in this matter with leading to uh, resignations of uh, different people who are ministers in his party. And basically, the working group included statements that indicated that it intends to focus on the controversy in connection with its scheduled phase four review. It recognized Canada's willingness to keep it fully informed of developments in the proceedings. And second, it stated that they will closely monitor Canada's updates. But uh, subsequent public comments by the working group chair, uh, Drago Koss, have confirmed that those indications that Koss said that Canada would be subject to the review. So although there is subject to the review, uh, there doesn't really seem to be uh, a lot of teeth here. And uh, what the article notes is that the working group statement is extraordinary in two respects. One, it's only the second time this has happened in the last decade. And two, it indicates indicates that the working group is likely to make SNC-Lavalin's controversy a centerpiece of its phase four review. So um, we'll have to see how that one turns out. Um, next up, Tom, uh, why don't you tell the folks a little bit about this week's uh, AMI podcast with Jesse Kaplan? 
Sure, Jay. We took a look at emerging issues in healthcare compliance and monitoring. And as always, Jesse uh, is a wealth of information. He talked about it from the regulator's perspective. He talked about it from the monitoring, uh, or rather the healthcare organization perspective. And he talked about proactive monitoring of an independent integrity monitor. But the part I'd like to highlight is his uh, first two on the opioid crisis. Uh, Jesse has come up with just an elegant not solution to the opioid crisis, but a tool that will help manage this crisis. And that tool is compliance. And uh, so we visited uh, in part one of the series on the legal and regulatory issues around the opioid crisis. And then uh, part two is Jesse's um, compliance solution for it. And when you can put a a business process solution to something as bad as the opioid crisis, I think it's it's truly innovative. So I would encourage everyone to uh, take a listen to this uh, podcast. We link to it in the show notes. Uh, I know you're working on a white paper uh, based upon Jesse's uh, thoughts on this area, and uh, I know that will be out soon, so we'll certainly let people know when, uh, when that's out. Jay, if I could, a couple of other things. Um, it's not next week, but on uh, Thursday, April 11th, if you're going to be in Houston, um, the uh, Greater Houston Business and Ethics Roundtable, or Gerber, will have our, our Q1 um, a meeting. Uh, we're going to take a look back at one year on GDPR. I've got registration information up if you'd like to go and you're not a Gerber member and you're in Houston. Just let me know and uh, I can uh, get you in for this uh, great meeting uh, of Gerber. Uh, also, we have two hours of CLE approved. So if you're a lawyer looking for some free CLE, uh, this is the place for you. And, and then let me shout out to uh, Mary Shirley, who um, interviewed Marianne Ibrahim of Baker Hughes, a GE company, uh, for the Great Women in Compliance podcast series. It's a great interview with Marianne. She's one of the true leaders in compliance. And I hope uh, everyone will take a listen to learn about uh, Marianne's uh, journey in compliance and really her her senior leadership role at uh, Baker Hughes now. Excellent. So um, I think we will wrap it up right here. It's a good time to stop. But um, both uh, for myself, Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor, and for Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist, we'd like to thank you for joining us uh, for this week in FCPA Episode 148 for the week ending March 29th, 2019, the Hope Springs Eternal Edition. Have a great weekend, and we'll talk to you next week. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you enjoyed this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have any questions, you can email Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. You can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I hope your team won on opening day, and I hope the opening weekend of the baseball season is as equally good for you. Finally, if you have a team in the NCAA left, I hope they will uh, win as well. So uh, go Michigan State, go green, and we will be off next week as I will be on assignment overseas, but we will be back the week of April 12th. Until then, I wish you a prosperous two weeks. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network.
This is Tom Fox again. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of This Week in FCPA, and I hope you enjoyed Pamela Ferrist Walsh, who joined us today. If you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. You can email Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. Hope you'll join Jay and I again next week where we take a look at some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories. This Week in FCPA is a presentation of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.